Let's pray. Lord our God, as we come now to open your word, we know that you only speak to us through the pages of Holy Scripture. And so we come grateful that we can open your word, that we can hear it proclaimed. And we ask, O oh God, that you would give us understanding here this morning. That you would help us to understand your word, that we would be men and women and children of integrity as Paul was. That we would boast in Jesus. God bless your word today for the sake of Christ, your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able to remain standing, please do so. And take your copies of God's word and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians 1, we'll begin at verse 12 and read through verse 22. Hear now the word of God, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is God speaking to us. So let us pay close attention. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so, so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I am sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a, a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Last Sunday morning, we finished up with Paul's introduction in 2 Corinthians. And Paul reminded us last Sunday that the God whom we worship and serve here today, that he is the God of all comforts. 
We looked at distress and how God is the God of all comfort. Paul spoke of his own distress. But yet he also spoke of God's deliverance and gratitude. Now this morning we come and we find that Paul had a change of plans. They had planned one thing, but God in his providence changed those plans concerning God going again to Corinth. And this morning Paul enters into the body of his letter. Now as he enter in, enters into that body of the letter, he does make reference back to verse 11 when he spoke of the support that he had received from the Corinthians. And that support, as Paul now moves into verse 12, is a cause of his boasting or glory. There were those in the church of Corinth that spoke negatively about Paul. There were those who spoke ill of Paul, but the Corinthians knew that Paul had acted honorably among them. And so Paul commends the readers that they are able to boast of him. They are able to glory of him just as he is of, of them. And the Corinthians to, could testify to Paul's integrity. And when we think of integrity, many times we think, well, integrity is important for, for ministers and for elders and for deacons. But integrity is important for all God's people. Now, what is integrity? Well, to give you a good definition, we go back to Webster's Dictionary, 1828, because today's dictionaries are not very good. This is what integrity is. The entire unimpaired state of anything, particularly of the mind. Moral soundness or purity. Incorruptness. Uprightness. Honesty. Integrity comprehends the whole moral character. But has a special reference to uprightness in mutual dealings. And so Paul speaks of his integrity. Of his uprightness. Of his in corruptness of his honesty, in his dealings with the Corinthians, and not only the Corinthians, but all of the churches that Paul would, would go and minister to, who, where Paul helped plant and nurture those churches. You see, we all should be men and women and children of, of integrity. We should be upright in all of our dealings with other people. And in reality, the second table of law, that is what it's telling us, right? If you want to know how to live with integrity, you keep the last six of the Ten Commandments. You keep those, you will be a, a person of integrity. You'll know how to love your neighbor as yourself. And so as Paul speaks to the Corinthians for the second time, and as there were those who spoke ill of Paul, who said he was not a man of integrity, now Paul wants to remind the Corinthians of how he dealt with them. So that those who spoke ill of Paul would not gain a foothold in the church. So there are three things we notice in our text. And we begin with Paul's boasting or his glory. In verses 12 through 14. 
Paul says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he continues to regard them as an object of his boasting. Even as Paul said that their boasting should be in the Lord. Now, what type of boasting is Paul speaking of? Well, he is not speaking of boasting that is in the form of human arrogance. That is sin. When we speak of how great we are, we sin. Now, that's what the natural man does, right? The natural man. That, that's what we were born to do. We were born in this world to speak about great I am. Look at me. Look at all that I do. That is not what Paul is speaking of. For as Christians, who receives all the glory and honor? It is the triune God whom we worship and serve here this morning. Human pride must be banished and God, God must be glorified. And so what is Paul's boast or glory? Paul gives God the glory for enabling him to live an exemplary life by his grace. The testimony of Paul's conscience. Now, the ESV reads that they behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. I think the American Standard Version is a little better that Paul and those with him, they, 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 they behave with holiness and sincerity of God. And they did this not with worldly wisdom or fleshly wisdom. Now again, there is a wisdom according to the world, right? We, we hear that all the time. We hear that wisdom if we turn on the TV. We hear the wisdom of the world and and there's no wisdom in that. Fallen man has no wisdom. There is no true knowledge of anything apart from the true knowledge of the one true God. But Paul did not behave in Corinth with a worldly wisdom, but by the grace of God. They behaved themselves in the world and, and more abundantly to them. And so Paul here introduces the testimony of one's conscience. And the setting is a courtroom. If you ever given testimony in a trial, you, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Now we know in today's climate, that's not done. But if you take that seriously, you, 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 you keep that vow. Now Paul's conscience means the, the faculty that gives a, a person a sense of moral Judgment, And so Paul ministered to God's people. He ministered to the Corinthians with holiness and sincerity to God. The conduct of Paul was impeccable. No one could question his motives when they observed his words and actions. In verse 13, the first part, he says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. You see, not only can the 
Corinthians examined Paul's conduct, they can scrutinize his epistles. Those addressed to them, those addressed to the, the, the church at large. And the Corinthians were able to examine closely what he said. And they will conclude that Paul has been perfectly honest in everything he has written to them. How many times have you sent a text message and a word was changed by autocorrect? That is of the devil. And you say one thing, but it comes out another way. And, and somebody asks, what? It is not clear communication. There's something wrong with that. And, and so when there's no clear communication, the message is likely not to be understood. And so even the critics of Paul could examine his writings, though, and, and they, would be able to, they would not be able to find anything by way of denouncing him. And so Paul says, I hope you will fully understand, just as you have indeed understood us in part, that we, your boast, and as much as you are our boast in the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul hopes that when the Corinthians read this correspondence, that they will heartily commend his integrity against those opponents in the church. Those who oppose Paul, those who oppose the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. Now when Paul was, was with them. They understood him. Did they not? They acknowledged his teachings. But some troublemakers have come into the church. And, and they are now a bit confused. Paul here is not rebuking them. But, but their partial understanding needs to be enhanced. He says. And brought to full comprehension. And so Paul glories in the Corinthians. He hopes that they will glory in Him even in the day of our Lord Jesus. Even that day when Christ comes that, that Paul would continue to glory in, in the Corinthians and they would glory in Paul. But then there's a, a second thing that Paul addresses and that was his, his change of plans. Now we've all been there, right? We've had a plan that we wanted to carry out and God and His providence changed that plan and, and we weren't able to carry out. And this is what we find Paul explaining. Now why would Paul explain this? Because some would say, were saying, well, Paul is being fickle because he said he was going to come and he didn't come. In verse 15, Paul says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a, a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Now what was Paul hoping for? He was hoping that as he came to, to Corinth there that second time, they would receive a double or second benefit. Now the ESV calls it a benefit of grace. Anytime a preacher preaches, there's a benefit of grace, right? If he's biblical. Now earlier Paul wrote that after Pentecost he would travel from Ephesus through Macedonia to Corinth and he said that he would even stay with the Corinthians for some time, uh, spend the winter months because travel by sea was impossible. He said this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 
And so Paul's initial plan had been to travel to visit the Macedonian churches. And after that, he would travel to Corinth and spend time there. And so there was a crisis in the congregation. So Paul changed his mind and he decided to pay a brief visit to Corinth, then go to Macedonia and then return to Corinth. And in verse one of of chapter two of this letter, he says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Paul is saying that visit was painful. Now, why was it? Well, the church leadership, they didn't want to hear from Paul. Now, we have no certainty that he then visited the Macedonian churches. But Paul wanted to do this. He wanted to be sent forth by the Corinthians to Judea. No doubt to take the, the offering that he mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And in that day, when uh, a man was sent with such an offering and uh, even a missionary being sent out, he would have been sent with the, the generosity of the Corinthians Uh, Sending him on his way to Jerusalem, having a a party with him to go and to uh, assist the apostle as he went. And then notice verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul is asking, was I fickle? Was my plan worldly? He's going to go on and show them that it wasn't. Paul's yes was yes. His no was no. But the Corinthians, as they listened to these troublemakers, they were beginning to denounce Paul and they were accusing him of not being trustworthy. So third and finally, we hear of Paul's authenticity. Or his, his trustworthiness. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been yes and no. Now what was their word to them? It was the word of God. God's word can be trusted. God's word is true. And God's word is absolutely true and trustworthy because God is faithful and true. And so when Paul went to Corinth, what was he proclaiming? The word of God. And the Corinthians knew this. They should have known better, right? They knew Paul. They should not have been listening to these troublemakers who were trying to denounce Paul. And and Paul reminds them of this. My word was true to you. And no time did my yes become no, my no become yes. And he goes on in verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Not only is God faithful, but God's Son is faithful. Now we know this by way of revelation, God's revelation. What 
did they preach? What did Paul preach? What did Silvanus preach? What did Timothy preach? It was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The same message that you hear this morning. You see, Jesus is the personification of God's truth. And because of that, Jesus never breaks His word. And therefore, He is unchangeable. He's God. And Paul continues, all the promises of God, verse 20, in Christ are yes. And through Jesus we say amen to God for His glory. Now where do we find the promises of God concerning the Messiah? The Old Testament. That was the Old Testament message of the Messiah who was to come. In about a month from now, we'll have our service of lessons and carols, right? And that is the beauty of that. As we read through all those Old Testament uh, prophecies and promises, they all point us to Jesus. And, and then we come to the New Testament, and the entire New Testament is a testimony that God's promises have been and are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when Paul and his associates and the Corinthians, when they say yes and amen through Jesus Christ to God, no one can legitimately accuse Paul of not being authentic or genuine. Now we say amen, do we not? We, we say it when we agree and that's what it means. We find something agreeable. We say amen every time we sing, or at least you're supposed to. Some of you do, some of you don't. Maybe you don't find it agreeable what you've sung. But you should. And we say amen, just as Paul could say amen to, to the promises of God that find their yes and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And in verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, it's God who is the one who performs the act of confirming Paul and the Corinthians. An act that occurs, says Paul, at that present time. God creates, strengthens, and sustains the fellowship that believers have in Jesus Christ. And what's the basis of that fellowship? It is the Word. Again, what a glorious time we had Friday with our brothers in Vanguard Presbytery. And, and it was just a glorious time. And what is the basis of our fellowship? The Bible. Pastors and elders and evangelists who believe what God says in this. That is wonderful, isn't it? Who believe the doctrines that we, we hold dear and have, have been set down for us from the Word of God through, through the Westminster Standards. What a wonderful thing. And that's why there is such unity. There was no argument at Presbytery Friday. And that is, that is odd for Presbyterians because we like to argue, don't we? But there's a unity. And that unity is based on the Word of God. It is based on 
the right doctrines that we find in the Word of God. You see, there is no unity in a church or a denomination at the expense of truth. Falsehood and lies bring disunity. And Paul continues, God has sealed us and given us the first installment of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, what is this sealing? What does a sealing do? Well, it denotes ownership and authenticity. And so God has established, says Paul, this seal for two reasons, to confirm that we belong to him and also to, to shield us from harm. And, and God has given us a deposit on that, hasn't he? His Holy Spirit. And when we think of signs and seals, where does our mind go? It goes to our, the sacraments, right? The sacraments are signs and seals of God's grace. So when are you sealed? You're sealed at baptism. Now, you're not given the Holy Spirit at baptism. There's nothing regenerative in, in the, the baptism itself. But, but in that act of baptism, you have been set apart by God. That's the beauty thing, the beautiful thing of infant baptism. Our, our covenant children being set apart, be raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, does that mean that they will be saved? Does that mean that they are then walking with Jesus? Not necessarily. But because of the covenant, they are set apart. And we who are believers, we have been sealed. We have that seal. And, and the Holy Spirit is that, that deposit or that first installment of what awakes us. And what awakes us, Christians? It is the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what awaits us. Turn over for a moment to, to Ephesians chapter 1. For Paul speaks of, of the ceiling there as well. Verses 13 and 14, Paul says, In Him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so when will we acquire possession of that inheritance? When Christ comes. When He returns in His glory. But now as believers, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. He is that security for us. And because of that, we know what awaits us. Now, what application can we make? Well, first of all, let me, let me ask you, Christian, in whom or in what are you glorying or boasting this morning? If I can be quite blunt this morning, if you're boasting in yourself, it may mean that you're still in unbelief. And pride is one of the most difficult sins to get rid of, isn't it? Because the natural man is so prideful. Look at me, look at what I've done. But as Christians, our boasting should be solely in one person. Jesus Christ. Why? Because without Him and God's grace, we have nothing to boast of. 
And some people like to boast in their good works. There are millions of people who are in unbelief this morning because they're boasting of their good works and they think their good works will get them to heaven. Your good works will send you to one place, that is hell, apart from Christ. And the Bible tells us, right, we're to do good works. James tells us that Abraham was justified by good works. What was James saying there? Was he contradicting Paul? No, not at all. What James was saying is this. If you are a Christian, your faith will be confirmed by your works. It's not your works that save you, it is Christ. And so as believers, we are never to boast or glory in ourselves. We are to boast solely in Jesus Christ. And we give God the glory when He enables us by His Spirit to live an exemplary life. And that should be our goal in, goal in this life, should it not? To live a life of holiness and sincerity. A life of integrity. Now there are times where we will not. There are times when we will fail in that and then we, we repent of our sin and we ask God to conform us more to the image of Jesus by His Holy Spirit. And where does He do that mostly? He does that in what happens here on the Lord's Day. Second, Christian, let your yes be yes and your no be no. For Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all truth. Again, we're to be honest, we're to be upright, we're not to be fickle. Jesus has taught us honesty in speech. And we must practice this. We're to be a truthful people. Third, those who, who love God and know that His Word is, those who love God know that His Word is trustworthy and completely reliable. God fulfills His promises. He remains true to all that He has spoken. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you serve and worship the one true God who is truthful in all His ways? Again, think about the millions of people that are in unbelief this morning. Some worshiping a false god, some worshiping a tree, worshiping nature, worshiping gods of their own imaginations and their choosings. And what, what and none of those gods can be trusted. Now, God warns us sometimes, doesn't He? He threatens us. We don't like to think of the, we, we love to think of the promises, those good promises, right? We love to focus on them. But there are times where God will threaten us and, and He threatens us so that we do not turn away from Him. Because those who do turn away from Him, He carries out those threats because they do not repent and turn to Him. Have you ever heard a, a threat from God and, and the Holy Spirit convicted you of whatever it was? And you immediately turn from that sin and you embrace God. What, uh, embrace the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ. What did God do with that threat? He annulled it. As if He had never uttered it. It's what He does when He forgives us of our sins, isn't it? Does God forget our sins? Well, does God forget anything? No. He's God. 
The Bible tells us God chooses not to remember our sins against us. In other words, when God forgives us through Christ, He's not going to bring those sins back up. They're done. They've been paid in full. And we can trust that because God is trustworthy and completely reliable and His Word is trustworthy. And fourth, Now that Christ has come, Christ has come to this earth and we know that He has left men, His messengers, and the manifestation of God's truth. Now where does that take place? Whenever the Word of God is proclaimed and wherever the Gospel is preached. Church, there are some good things happening. I don't want this just to be a Hooray session for Vanguard Presbytery. But there are some good things. God, God is using this small denomination. And there are men who will boldly go out and preach. In places where some men would never do. And so what happens? When that happens? Well, people hear the truth. Whether they like it or not. That's the good thing about preaching. You hear the truth whether you like it or not. And God will use it according to to His his will. And so whenever the gospel is preached, the, the people of God express either verbally or silently our affirmation. And if you don't express that, that, that affirmation of the gospel being proclaimed, then, then you have no true faith in Jesus. You know, at previous churches, I've been, I've been asked, why, why, why am I so harsh on the congregation? Why do I call people to faith and repentance? And it's simple, isn't it? Because the church has people in it that are not believers, even though they're members of the church. But if you cannot express a, an affirmation when the gospel is preached, then, then there's something that is wrong. Because we should constantly remind ourselves of what God has done for us through Christ. Because then our boasting is in Jesus, not in ourselves. Then our boasting can be in one another as God's grace has brought us together in the church. And God has given us someone, has He? Not something, but someone to confirm that, the Holy Spirit. He has been given to us. He is our seal. And He is the one who fills us this morning. And so let me ask you, do you have the name of Christ written on you? Do you have the guarantee of your inheritance, the Holy Spirit? Now what what does that mean? Have you been born again? Have you been regenerated? In order to see the kingdom of God, man must be born again. And and man cannot do that work, can he? It is God's work. This past Wednesday night, we spoke of the importance of effectual calling and regeneration and evangelism. We're going through evangelism on Wednesday evenings. And and we spoke of the importance of that and getting back to that. And we rightly view effectual calling and and, and regeneration, then it does away with man-centered evangelism and our evangelism is God-centered. 
What are we called to do? We are called to present the truth of God to every creature. And we let God do His work. And we bathe that in prayer. Can you say this morning that you're a child of God? That you've come to Christ in faith and repentance. Only those who have done so are children of Almighty God. If not, then come to Christ today. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. And then make your boast in Him. Because He is Savior. He is Lord. He is Redeemer. And then and only then will you be able to live in this world and behave in this world with holiness and sincerity as Paul did. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Again, in the wisdom literature of the, of the Old Testament, what do, we say, what do we see earthly wisdom as? And what, where does it lead? It leads to destruction, doesn't it? The book of Proverbs tells us that very plainly. But godly wisdom leads to life. And that godly wisdom is Jesus. And so come to Him. He is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can redeem. And He is the one who is proclaimed to you this morning. May God add His blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of His Word. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank You this morning that Paul could boast of the Corinthians and he could boast of Christ because of what Christ did for the Corinthians. And Father, may we boast in Jesus and what He has done for us. Lord, I pray that You would take Your Word now and You would apply it to the hearts of those who are here. If there are any here this morning that does not know you, any here this morning that believes that their works are the what gets them to heaven, that you, that you would humble them. And that you would point them to the only work that can get them to heaven. That is the work of Jesus. Oh Lord, save your elect this morning. Further sanctify your saints. And help us to live holy lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, as we come now to open the word this evening. May we hear your call tonight to worship with thanksgiving. May we see, oh God, the reasons to worship you with thanksgiving and the result. Lord, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us to give us understanding this evening. And you would bless the reading, hearing, and preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are able to remain standing, please do so and turn in your copies of God's word to Psalm 111.
Psalm 111, we'll begin at verse 1 and read to the end. Verse 10, hear now the word of God. It is infallible, it is inerrant. It is God speaking to us, so let us pay close attention. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hand are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Again tonight, we have given God thanks for His many blessings as we always do at this time of year. And it is appropriate to come not only tonight, but every Lord's Day and worship God with thanksgiving. And that is exactly what this psalm is about. How we who are to worship God, we are to worship Him with Thanksgiving, Psalm 111, and the Psalms that follow were were penned by David for the service of the church and their solemn feast. This is rightly called a Psalm of praise. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise Jehovah. The very beginning of this Psalm tells us that we must address ourselves to the use of this psalm with hearts that are disposed to praise God. Now hopefully by way of our Thanksgiving testimonials, they got those testimonials got our hearts disposed tonight to praise Him. So the psalmist is exhorting God's people. He is exhorting us to the praise of God. And as he exhorts us, he sets himself as an example. Just as he calls us to praise the Lord, he himself in this psalm praises the Lord. He then furnishes us with the matter for the praise of God. And, And that matter, the reasons why, are from the works of God. And in the end, he recommends the holy Fear of God. 
a conscientious obedience to the commands of God. And he reminds us that that obedience is the most acceptable way of praising God. And so again, we have many reasons to be thankful tonight. Many reasons to come and to praise our God. And so there are three things I want us to to hear and see tonight from this psalm. And first of all, I want us to hear the call to worship God with thanksgiving. That call is given to us in verse 1. Praise the Lord or praise Jehovah. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. The psalmist here declares his intention and it is simply this. He is going to praise his God. Hopefully that is our intention this evening. That is our intention every time we gather together in public corporate worship. The psalmist declares his intention to praise God with a whole heart as an act of public worship. Notice, he will give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart, with his whole heart. We are to do the same. When we think of obedience, what is does God, what pleases God in obedience? Half-hearted or or wholehearted obedience. Wholehearted obedience. When we come and worship tonight, what pleases God? A, a heart that is halfway into worship or a whole heart and mind and soul and strength worshiping Him with every ounce of our being. This is what the psalmist is calling us to, to come and give thanks to the Lord, to Jehovah, with our whole heart. And notice where? In the company of the upright. In the congregation. Now, what is the congregation? Is the congregation assembled for worship? The writer of Hebrews tells us, does he not, in Hebrews 10, that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That same idea is found here. We come and we praise God as His people in the congregation or in the assembly. Now, that doesn't mean we can't praise Him at home. We should. It doesn't mean that we can't give Him thanks at home. We, we should be giving Him thanks every day. But when we come into the worship of God, the public worship of God, the corporate worship of God, we are to come with our whole heart and to give thanks to God with the rest of His people and the company of the upright. Christian, you make up the company of the upright or the righteous. And so that is the call we have tonight. Part of our worship should always include thanksgiving to the Lord. And so after the psalmist calls us to worship God with thanksgiving, he then gives us three reasons why we should worship God with thanksgiving. And the first is God's work of provision. And he begins with the greatness of God's work. Verses 2 and 4. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works 
to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now, what are the works of God? There are many, aren't there? The Westminster Divines, they summarize all the works of God under two headings. The first great work of God is creation. God created all things in the space of, of six 24-hour days and all very good. And we should praise His, His name tonight for that great work of creation. The second work are His works of providence. Now this is where God works out His decrees in the here and now. And so even in the, in the mundane things of life, we see the great works of God and the, and the providence of God. And, and the psalmist reminds us that the works of the Lord are great. Think of the work of creation. If we believe in biblical creation as we should, that is a great and, uh, and outstanding work, isn't it? God creating all things from nothing by the word of of his power. Now if we believe in a theory concerning creation. And again it is a theory not proven by science. If we believe in a theory we take away from the, the greatness and the glory and the power of God. Now God could have created all things in an instant. In one instant, he could have spoke everything into being, but he chose not to do that. Why? Well, the Bible tells us why, so that we know something about time, and so that he pat, we pattern our week after God's creation week. We think of the greatness of God's works of providence. Do you thank God when you make it safely home from a trip? Not knowing what you may have missed in his providence. You thank him for that great work of redemption that he has given us through, through Christ. And so these great works, they are to be studied. And all who study these great works, they delight in them. Children, young people, when you study creation, you'll delight in your God. When you study in the, in the works of, of providence, it causes us to delight in our God. Now, where do we study these things? Well, one place is church history, right? We see how God has worked in history. And it brings us great delight in God. Now, the psalmist describes God's works in general. And then he speaks of certain attributes of the Lord, His eternal righteousness. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. God is righteous in all of his ways and he has always been righteous. He has always existed. God has always been. Genesis 1.1, again, we go back to Genesis for so much, right? In the beginning, God. Now what does that tell us? That God has always been. And he has always been righteous. His righteousness is is eternal, but also God is gracious. Now we've named many reasons tonight to be thankful because of God's grace. The ultimate part of that is, is the redemption that he has given us through Jesus. 
If you're a Christian tonight, you're a Christian because of the grace of God. You are a Christian not only because of the grace but of God, but as the psalmist reminds us, because of the compassion of God as well. It is God who provides food for those who fear him. Now, we don't think much of God providing us food, do we? We should. Now, if God in his providence was to send to us some very difficult days in the future where we wonder if we're going to eat, it will cause us to think more clearly about the food that God provides. But if God does send those days to us, notice what verse 5 says, he provides food for those who fear him. Christian, you will not go hungry. God will provide. And so these works of God, these attributes, they, they reveal, they are revealed most fully in God's mighty acts. And so how do we respond to these works? Well, man responds to evidences of God at work by seeking for further evidences and by remembering those works already performed. Again, by studying these great works. And so again, we've, we've spoken a little bit of God's provision in, in verse 5. Look at, at verse 6 as well. He has, or the latter part of verse 5 first, God remembers his covenant forever. Not only does he provide food for those who fear him, he remembers his covenant. What covenant? It's the covenant of grace. God works by way of covenants. And there are two. The first is the covenant of works. That was entered into with our first parents and they failed in keeping that covenant. But immediately after that, God was gracious and he told them of the Redeemer. And he showed them by sacrificing animals to clothe them the need of the shed blood of that Redeemer. And that is the covenant of grace. And that's what God remembers. If we are in covenant with God tonight... And that covenant of grace through Jesus, God will never forget that covenant. And he's given us a sign of that, hasn't he? In nature, it's called the rainbow. God's covenant with Noah is a part of the covenant of grace. How sad it is that the sign of God's covenant to man concerning never destroying the world again by way of the flood has been co-opted by wicked sodomites. And that is all in the face of this holy and righteous God that takes care of his people. But then look at verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Now what does that mean? Well, it means this, that God is going to advance his kingdom. In this world. Now we have an inheritance. We spoke about that this morning. And who is the seal of that inheritance? It is the Holy Spirit, isn't it? He is the guarantee. We heard Paul say this morning in 2 Corinthians 1. He is a guarantee of our inheritance. The new heavens and the new earth. But Christian, understand this tonight. That as the word of God goes forth. And his people is shown the power of his works. They will inherit the nations. We will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And more and more of the wicked of this world will be converted 
We believe in the power of preaching. There are many in the church that do not. But we are called to believe in that power because it is through the foolishness of the message preached, Paul tells us as well, that men are saved. Now, now the second reason, not only is God's work of provision, but the, the second reason we are to give thanks in our worship of God is God's work uh, of revelation. And the psalmist speaks of this in verses 7 and 8. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. First of all, the works of God's hands are faithful and just. Now, our works many times are not faithful. There are probably times where we all have, let's just say, not given our employer the work that is due to him. But not God. The works of his hands are faithful. They are just. Again, they, they are righteous. But then notice what the psalm says. All of his precepts, all of his laws, all of his commandments are trustworthy. The whole word of God is trustworthy for us. We need not doubt God's word to us tonight. Whatever God says, it's true and righteous. And his word will be performed, the psalmist says in verse 8, with faithfulness and uprightness. God is faithful. God is upright. And so the word, his word will be performed and fulfilled with that same faithfulness and uprightness. But then there's a third reason why we are to give God thanks and worship. And that is found in verse 9. And that is God's work of redemption. He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Christian, every day you should wake up and you should say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Because we can't save ourselves. You see, that's the whole reason we need a Savior. If we could save ourselves, we would be our own Savior and we would not need Jesus, would we? But God has sent redemption to His people. He sent redemption through His Son. God redeems His people from their sins. Now, some people hear that and they don't like that. What do you mean God redeems His people from their sins? Do you remember the name that was given by the angel? for Joseph, you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people. From their sins. When Jesus came to this earth, He came to this earth with a, a, a definite purpose and for a definite people to save all that the Father had given to Him. And Jesus has done the work for their redemption. 
Again, why? Because God remembers his covenant. He has commanded his covenant forever. And holy and awesome is his name. And then third and finally, we have the result. What happens when we worship God with thanksgiving? The result is found in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Christian, when you come and you worship God with thanksgiving, you recognize His works and, and all that He has done for you, and you, and you bow down and you praise His holy name, what does that lead to? It leads to the fear of the Lord. And, and all throughout the wisdom literature of the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now what is that fear? Before we were believers, the fear was what? It was a fear of judgment, and rightly so. Before God saved us, we feared that God would cast us into hell. Now, we may not have thought about that. Maybe God used that fear to convert some of us. But when God saved us, the, the fear changed from a fear of judgment to a fear that is a reverence for God. And so tonight we've gathered in fear, but it is a reverence. And that is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to know what is wrong with our nation, it is this point tonight that they do not fear God. And if you want to know why God is judging us, it is because of that. We have fallible men trying to be God. And so as we fear God, we, we have wisdom. The fear of the Lord, uh, those who practice it have a good understanding. Now notice what the psalmist says. If you want a good understanding of the fear of God, you have to practice it. You can't just give it lip service. And this fear of the Lord leads to praise. It leads to adoration. It leads to service to the Lord. The psalm ends much like it began. His praise endures forever. So what application can we make here tonight? Well, we are called to worship the Lord with thanksgiving. Every Lord's day. Many times we just think of Thanksgiving one day a year, right? This coming Thursday, we'll eat too much, we'll lay down, we'll go to sleep. I don't know if we'll think much about God's goodness. We should. But we know every day, every Lord's Day that we come together, we are called to worship God with Thanksgiving. And we have many reasons to worship God with Thanksgiving every Lord's Day. Thanksgiving is always a part of our worship of the Lord. And again, we have so much to be thankful for. Every, every Lord's Day morning and evening, you could come and you could give God thanks for these three reasons. God has provided for you both physically and spiritually. And many times we think we've provided for ourselves, but no, it's God. And what did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. 
You have bread on your table today, tomorrow, and this week. Not because you went to the grocery store, but because God provided it for you. Every Lord's Day morning and evening, we have reason to give thanks to God. For He has revealed Himself to us through His Word. Think of the, the millions of people tonight that are living in darkness because they don't have the Word of God. Now we know this seems that is getting less and less, right? Thanks to the work of the church and the work of faithful Christians taking the Word of God to places that say the Word of God is off limits. I always laugh at those places. Because they say the Bible's not welcome here, but if you go and you know the right people, you'll find the Bible. But you have every reason to thank God tonight because He has revealed Himself to you through the Word and He has given you understanding. And every Lord's Day morning and evening, we have reason to give thanks to God because God has redeemed us solely by His grace and mercy and based on His covenant. And that promise extends to our children. Our parents, are you not glad of that tonight? That, that when Peter was preaching the day of Pentecost, he said the, uh, for the crowd to repent and believe the gospel, for the promise is for you and for your children. The promise of the gospel. And to all whom the Lord our God will call. Second, as we worship God with thanksgiving, we will have the fear or the reverence of the Lord. You want to be wise tonight? Then fear God and keep His commandments. That was the last great bit of, of, of command that Solomon gives at the end of Ecclesiastes. Isn't it? Fear God and keep His commandments. That's, that's the end of it all. That's the end of it. If you want a successful life, then you fear God and keep His commandments. And as you do that, as you fear the Lord, as you reverence the Lord, you will have a good understanding of the one true God. You will have a good understanding of your dependence upon Him for everything, but especially your dependence upon Him for eternal life. And finally tonight, know this, that salvation begins and ends with the God who saves. The God who redeems His people, for He has sent redemption to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, after Thanksgiving, we enter what? Into Christmas time, right? The Christmas season. That which is no longer about the Lord. It's about gifts. It's about Santa. And we Christians, we've eaten it up. But why did God send His Son? I mean, times in our service of lessons and carols, I remind us, God did not send His Son so that we might get gifts on December 25th. He sent His Son to save us. And to redeem us. Now you might think, well, I don't need to be saved. Well, let me ask you, are you perfect in all of your ways like the Lord Jesus Christ? 
If you are perfect in all of your ways, like the Lord Jesus, and, and outwardly in what you do, inwardly in what you think, and, 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 and what you, you think in your mind and in your heart, if your life inward and outwardly perfectly, perfectly conforms to the law of God, then, then you need not Jesus. There's not one of us here tonight that can say that. You see, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they transgressed that first covenant of works and, and we fell into sin with them and God sent His Son to redeem us out of that estate of sin and misery. And as God sent His only begotten Son, His, his Son lived a perfect life that we could not. And he took that perfect obedience to the cross. And there he died, not for the sins of everyone who has ever lived or who is living now or will live, but for the sins of his people. And every sin of his, of his children and of those whom the Father gave to him has been paid in full. And so it is God who saves. It is God who redeems. And so as we come to the table tonight, we should come with what? Thanksgiving. We should be thankful. Lord, you have saved me. You have redeemed me. And as we understand that we do not deserve this grace or mercy that God bestows to us in and through Jesus Christ, it will keep us thankful. When we begin to think that we have earned it, that we deserve it, then we have not, and we will, we will not, we do not understand the gospel rightly. And so before us tonight in the Lord's Supper is a picture of salvation that begins and ends with God. Salvation, the fact that God sent His Son to redeem His people. Again, this is the only legitimate picture of Jesus Christ that we have. The bread and the wine. The bread representing the body of Christ given for us. The wine representing the blood of Christ poured out for us. So we come tonight thankful. We come rejoicing in the fact that God keeps His covenant and that He's redeemed us. And again, if you are here tonight and you know not of this redemption, then ask God. Go to Him in prayer. Seek His face. If you do that, it's a sign that God is working on you. And that He is beginning to bring you to His Son. And so come to Christ. Forsake your sin. And then you'll come with thanksgiving to worship the God who has redeemed. May God add his blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you tonight for your word. That we can be reminded of the need of coming to worship you with thanksgiving. Now Lord, we pray now that as we come to your table, that you would bless us with that means of grace that you've given us in the Lord's Supper. That we would come with joyful and thankful hearts. And Father, I pray for any here tonight that do not 
that does not know the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, save them. Bring them to Christ. And do so for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.